This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and ceramics artist Edmund Duvall discusses his new book, The White Road, Journey into an Obsession. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed covers the National Book Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. We have a very unusual book at the top of the hardcover nonfiction list. Yes, yes, we do. Something we see now, all the time. What this, we is, this is Fallout 4 Vault Dweller Survival Guide Collector's Edition, a prima official game. Game guide. So this is, uh, we've seen game guides show up on the list. But not usually at number one. Not at number one, exactly. So that's kind of intriguing. So (laughs) Clearly it's a very popular game and people are willing to shell out for that collector's edition. Right, exactly, exactly. And um, uh, and and it's not so bad because it's about 23... $24 $24 for the editions. So. And with something like 43,000 copies sold, that's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So at number five, going down the list, John Meacham with Destiny and Power, the American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. So Bush biography, G.H. Mm-hmm. Bush. Number 11, this is great. Uh, Shonda Rhimes, uh, Year of Yes, How to Dance It Out, Stand in the Sun, and Be Your Own Person. Now, Shonda Rhimes is the creator of the TV series Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. And also the executive producer of How to Get Away with Murder. And here's this memoir in, in a self-help book that promotes saying yes to life. So that's at uh, number 11. That's really interesting because yeah. there was another book a few years ago that had a very similar title um, by Maria Headley that was about saying yes to every man who asked her on a date. So, right. um, so I, I wonder if there's going to be a, a bump for that book just based on people searching for this for, one. For right, exactly. People who just want to say yes. Yes, say, exactly. Well, I could say yes. Yeah. Uh, we have a few Christian books on the list here, uh, perhaps in time for Christmas. The Emmaus Code, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament by David Limbaugh, and this is at number 12. And then further down, we have Unstoppable, Harnessing Science to Change the World by Bill Nye, the science guy. Whenever he has a book, it's on the list. I yeah, mean, I'm, I'm actually popular. I'm surprised it's not higher than 31. That's uh, right. Yeah, that's right. I, I would expect him to to be boosted up a little bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's true. So number 38, we have the Food Lab. Better Home Cooking Through Science, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. We gave this book a starred review, saying the managing culinary director of the series Eats website. He's also the editor and author of the James Beard Award-nominated Comlin that informs this massive investigation into the best methods for preparing a litany of food. Here, he takes a deep dive into classic recipes and their best preparation methods. I love his stuff on Serious Eats so much. You yeah. just, you just yep. want to sit there and read it. I mean, you cook it, too. And I've cooked some of his recipes and they're great, but he's just such a good writer. Yeah. And this book is, this is not a small book. It's a big book, thick book meaning, but it's selling. 
It's nice to see it on the bestseller list. That's great. At number 41, we have last week's uh, guest author, Warren Zanes, and his Petty, the biography of Tom Petty, starred review. We say Zanes, a musician who toured with Tom Petty, narrates this balanced chronicle of Petty's career with the detached delivery of a seasoned journalist combined with the intimacy of a friend bold enough to dig deep beneath the service of his own musical hero. And uh, that was a fun that was a fun interview. Yeah, we had a very good time with him. And anyone who missed it, you can just go to our website, publishersweekly.com slash PW Radio. Click on the Warren Zanes interview. You will not be disappointed. It was a lot of fun. It yeah. was great. And finally, we have Rain Wilson with The Bassoon King, My Life in Art, Faith, and Idiocy. This is at number 46. Rain Wilson is best known for his TV role in The Office. Mm-hmm. And here he talks about his life and his formative years in uh, Nicaragua, then moving to Olympia, Washington, and the role the bassoon played in his life, among other things. So that's at number 46. Well, there's not a lot going on on the fiction hardcover list. Um, The top four are the same top four that we had last week, Mm. um, just in a slightly different order. Uh, Stephen (laughs) King moved down to number two, and John Grisham moved up to number one. And, you know, the usual folks jockeying for position at the top. Um, Moving down a little bit, we have at number five uh, The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto by Mitch Album. We don't have a review of this yet, uh, but uh, this is the the story of a guitar player and six lives that he changed with his six magical guitar strings. So that's at number five. And number six is The Promise by Robert Craze. We gave this a starred review. We said that uh, he's at the top of his game in his 16th Elvis Cole uh, investigation. So um, this is about a Los Angeles PI uh, who does all those PI things in in investigating murders and other crimes. And uh, we say that the resolution of the complicated conspiracy in this book is both clever and touching. Oh, great. So that's number six. And number seven, Crimson Shore by Preston and Child, so Douglas Preston, Lincoln Child, um, who have just sort of become a brand in, in their in their own right. This is their 15th thriller featuring FBI agent Aloysius Pendergast. And uh, he agrees to accept a private case, which mm-hmm. is unusual. Usually he's working for the FBI. And uh, we say that the, the genuine scares take a while to come. But when they do, readers will be reminded of the violent horror of Relic, which is Pendergast's first novel, and in a lot of ways, the one that put Lincoln and Child on the map. So this is a a great one for their fans. At 18, we have a a slightly unusual title, not something we usually see on the fiction list, which is uh, Collected Graphic Novels. Oh. Um, And in this case, uh, it's 25 years since Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics completely uh, changed everyone's idea of what a comic could be. And uh, this is the Sandman Overture, which um, is, you know, collects a series in a deluxe hardcover edition. So that's definitely one for all the fans out there, uh, especially people who've tried to find the books that have gone in and out of print over the years. And uh, finally, just a little further down at number 27, we have Rules for a Night by Ethan Hawke. Yes, the actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's also an author. And this is uh, a heartwarming medieval tale on ethics, which is, again, not something you might expect from him. Um, we say that in our review that it's written in an epistolary form from the perspective of his imagined ancestor, Sir Thomas Lemuel Hawke, a knight who knows he is about to die in war. So he teaches his children the 20 rules of knighthood using examples from his own life. 
And we say that Hawk touches upon subjects less often addressed, uh, such as speech, solitude, and death. And his joust against injustice and fear is easy and enduring, perfect for young and old alike. Mm, so uh, that's down at number 27. And that's pretty much everything big on the best soil list this week. Well, let's we'll see what December brings us. Oh, my goodness. It really is almost <laughs> December. <laughs> <I know. laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Edmund Duvall tells us how porcelain drove him to travel around the world. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adrian Tomina, the creator of Killing and Dying, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Edmund Duvall on the line. His new book is The White Road, Journey into an Obsession. Edmund, I'm so glad you could join us. I'm very, very glad to be talking to you, Rose. So um, you're a potter by trade, a ceramics artist, and this book is about your fascination with porcelain. Tell us what got you so interested in this particular area of your specialty. Well, the thing is that I actually been making pot all my life. I mean, I, my very first pot I made at the age of five. Um, so it's been my daily li- in my daily life for, for as long as I can remember. And it's been my working life for, for 35 years since I was apprenticed. So white pots and then more latterly over the last 30 years, porcelain, have been very much the heart of my obsession. I, there's a real sense, in fact, of why haven't I been writing, I, in some ways I've been writing this all my life. I've been on this particular journey to try and work out what porcelain means for a very, very long time. I just happen now to have actually finished it and be publishing it. So how, how can you decide that that journey is finished? I mean, that, that sounds like quite a pronouncement for something that's been with you for so long. I, I, I don't believe in finishing journeys. I, in fact, I have a huge mistrust, both of people who think that you can map a journey before you begin, that in some way, if you write, that uh, setting out on a journey with a with a very clear sense of of all the points of the compass, all the destinations, all the people you're going to encounter, uh, the meaning of all the research you'll undertake, I think that ends up as a sort of a deathly narrative. I don't think that that, that makes a book. And similarly, I, I having finished in some way actually this book, of course, it it, it's, it feels like I'm I'm have to start all over again. I have to go back and uh, deep into this territory just to work out all the things that I've uncovered and of which are challenging me now both as a, a maker of porcelain and a writer about about this territory. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to make porcelain? This is something that was a very closely guarded secret for hundreds of years. It's fantastic. It's an extraordinarily seductive material. You have to imagine a, a white clay. It's, not, it's, it's got no real kinship with at all with, um, with um, those very rough red or gray clays you might remember from kindergarten. This, this when you pick it up, has a, a softness, a kind of plasticity to it, which, is, uh, which is, draws you in. And when, when you've got a, a piece of porcelain in, in your hand, you feel like it's... It's, um, I'm rubbing my hands together as I'm talking to you. It feels like it goes on forever. It feels capable of infinite possibility. Having said that, it's very seductive. But of course, one of the other properties of this 
material, which as you say was a secret for, for centuries, is that it goes wrong. Mm. It's very difficult, very, very difficult to make a finished piece out of this white clay. Everything always goes wrong. So what what makes it so so difficult, so finicky? It sounds like a real diva of a material. Well, one of the things that, because it can be I'm a thrower, I throw on a, on, a, on a wheel like generations before me. So one of the things about making something which is very thin and finely balanced out of the clay of this sort of precision in terms of materiality is that it warps, it, mm. it, it moves around, it won't stay still. And because you want it to be thin, because the thinner you get it, the more translucent it becomes. It has this extraordinary property of letting light through. So you're trying to aim for this sort of this sort of um, uh, fugitive uh, moment when it's so thin and so light and so that that it that it, that it that the light comes through it. And if you're aiming for that, then of course it cracks, it warps, it breaks, it shatters, and all these other things happen. But but you know what? I mean, there's nothing wrong with having having an obsession about something you can't get right. It's actually more interesting than having an obsession about something you can do. You know, it's actually, there's more, there's more, if you're going to spend your life doing something, you might as well not be able to do it terribly well or feel the need to keep on learning how to do it. Much more compelling. What a wonderful way of approaching it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the book is full of encounters for me with, with shards, with broken pots, which, with, with, with things that have gone wrong. And when I pick up these broken pieces of porcelain in China or in Germany or in England or wherever, wherever I encounter them, I feel a huge um, warmth towards the people who've made them because I actually know what happens. I do actually feel connected to, to, to um, this, um, this extraordinary history of, of things not going the way you think they were going to go. I make it sound incredibly depressing, but it's actually, um, there is an element of, of uh, a real interest for me in, in, in encountering things which are fragmentary. Mm. So tell us a little bit about your physical journeys. You traveled to China, to Germany, to the United States. Um, what what shaped that path for you? Well, the theoretical journey, that I, the, 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 the kind of the pitch I gave to myself was that I was going to go to three white hills, the three places where porcelain came from or was reinvented, which means going to Jingdezhen, a city of porcelain in, in, in southern China. It's going to to Meissen in Germany in Saxony, where porcelain was created in the early 18th century. And then going to Cornwall in southwest England, where porcelain was attempted um, later in the 18th century. So three white hills seem to be my kind of, um, seem to be my destinations. But as in the way of all good journeys, of course, I got waylaid. So in the end, I end up in Venice and Dublin and Istanbul and the Appalachian Mountains and Beijing and um, and finally got it critically in 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 in, in, uh, in Dachau. So you know, it's it, it, it's the kind of journey where where you are where I well I am where I am waylaid by discovering different people or different stories or different 
material ways and using porcelain and just feel this need to follow the stories where they lead me. So tell us um, one of those stories that particularly stands out or a moment from your from your journeys that's particularly at the forefront of your mind. I'm not going to ask you to pick favorites because I know that everybody hates being said, what, what was your favorite? But what's something that really stays with you? Okay, I'm stumped at this moment, but I will give you one, one extraordinary story, which is um, discovering that in the middle of the 18th century, there was a rumor arrived in, in, in London, in England, um, that there was this very precious and, and, and astonishing white clay, kaolin, the china clay out of which porcelain can be made, had been discovered in Cherokee country, in the Appalachian Mountains of Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, that the, and that the Cherokee Indians had a mountain of white clay and this, this, this rumor, the story of this extraordinary material, this beautiful material, reached Wedgwood, the great English potter and entrepreneur, who sends an adventurer all the way across the world in order to basically uh, trade with the Cherokee Indians uh, and steal their clay, uh, which he does. He steals five tons of this sacred clay from the from the Cherokee and brings it all back to England and then Wedgwood um, um, creates it becomes part of this great story of 18th century porcelain so that Wedgwood's great porcelain dinner services for Catherine the Great all have Cherokee clay in them. It's such an extraordinary story that I decided that I actually had to go to this place because I'm a firm believer in travelling so I actually went all the way over to Carolina and found the hillside and found the last bit of clay that's still left there, you know, in this, this scarred hillside. Mm. And you know, that, that sort of encounter across, what is it, 250 years, where you go back to a place and you try and, you try and revisit, reimagine, bring back to life a particular moment of, of where, where something extraordinary has happened. Um, seems to me something that is worth doing. I certainly absolutely loved that whole strange journey to try and find out what what had gone on. That's such an interesting... Your use of the word sacred um, is, is, I think, particularly telling because it sounds like this material has this this very mystical quality for anyone who, who looks at it, who works with it, who desires things made from it. And it it, is a very powerful reason at the heart of that, really, which is that the the epigraph of my book is actually from Moby Dick. It's, what is this thing of whiteness? Mm. And there is something very powerful and compelling about white objects, about white clay and white objects. There's something very uh, terrifying, really, about this need to find something which is very pure and then work out what to do with it, what it means. So this compulsion towards whiteness, which you find so strongly in Chinese culture, where whiteness is obviously the, the color symbolically of, of mourning and death, or you find it in 
in Germany um, amongst the 18th century courts and then most terrifyingly later in the 20th century in, 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 uh, in, in the Nazi regime. This, this idea of what whiteness means, this, this desire to have something which is so esoteric and make it your own and handle it and have it and give it, give it as gifts and, and just live with it seems to me a part of this the strangeness of the story is, is is the dangerousness of it the dangerousness of the compulsion i certainly along the along the way kept encountering over over the centuries this many people who had what augustus the strong called porcelain sickness porcelain counterpart people who couldn't stop making it searching for it or collecting it so um Tell me a little bit more, if you're willing to talk about it, about this connection with Nazi Germany, which is not a thing I'd ever heard uh, in in the context of porcelain, of of pottery. So I, I mean, I really thought that I, I was pretty good on on the 20th century ceramics, and 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 then with research, something came up, a name of a factory that I just didn't know of, called Alach. Um, and found that it was a factory that was started in the late 30s, and the factory was near Munich. Um, and then found out that the people who owned it and ran it were, were Nazis, and that they, and that, that then it sort of unraveled in this extraordinary, this, this, this terrible story of of these people who were making white porcelain. And it was white because it was Aryan, and it was white because mm. it was pure German material, and that it came to the attention of Himmler, who terrifyingly decided to move the factory to Dachau concentration camp so that he could he could have more control over it, so that his favorite porcelain, which was you know, figures of SS officers and sentimental figures of German peasants and, and animals, um, were made in in, in, in in the death camp in, in Dachau, um, and that he used to come and, and and visit visit this porcelain factory, and, and you know, there are extraordinary photographs of him picking things up and checking the quality, and and, and he used to bring guests. There. I found the guest the visitors book, you know, for the factory, and and. You know, he, he, he wanted this porcelain, he needed it. You know, it sort of, it was, the, the symbolism of it for him was that this was, this was all about making something authentically German and totally pure. But, but, but the, the cost of this is grim. I mean, they, they, were, they were still firing the kilns right up to the very end of the war, even when they weren't firing the crematorium anymore. In, in the camps, and so you know, the, 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 this this return to this to, to, to the material, not as a um, not as something which is a, a, a connoisseurial thing or a collected thing or a thing of solace and beauty, but as as a thing of of terror, sort of throws this white rose, the story of porcelain, into into a much more difficult, difficult place. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. 
PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Edmund Duvall, author of The White Road, who's telling us some incredible stories of the people who've been afflicted. I thought that's the right word with with porcelain sickness, with this obsession with porcelain. You also um, integrate some uh, elements of science and mathematics. Tell us a little bit about that and about alchemy as well. Well, the extraordinary thing about porcelain is that for centuries in, 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 in Europe, no one knows how to make it. I mean, it's, a, it's an arcanum, it's a, it's a mystery. And so porcelain is, is a question mark, and therefore it attracts, it attracts people who are interested in problem solving, and it attracts alchemists, it attracts people who are trying to transmute, to translate one kind of substance into another. Um, one of the great colorful characters in my book is this fraudster, Alchemist, a man called a young man called Bertger, who who has famously um, turned lead into gold, and therefore is locked up by the king until he can do it again and, and, and make everyone's fortunes. But also, it also attracts a whole an, a, 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 an extraordinary group of people who are interested in the philosophy of porcelain, the idea of porcelain, and they include amazingly, and who would know this? You know, Newton and. Leibniz and Spinoza, I mean, extraordinary philosophers, hmm. and, and also a, a wonderful ma- young mathematician who I totally fell in love with. I fall in love with the most unlikely people in, in, in this book. Um, a young German mathematician called um, Chernhaus, um, Baron Chernhaus, who, who gets so obsessed by the idea that, that somehow if he gets the maths right, it might, if he gets the, the equations right, if he, gets, if he can work out the the, the concept of of of, uh, of porcelain, he will be able to suddenly learn how to make it. So all these people are, are on the journey towards it, and then some of them, of course, finally get there, but many, many don't. Um, you described the cobalt that was used in some designs on porcelain pots as a pigment that allows the world to be turned into stories. And you also talk about porcelain so white and true and perfect that the world around it is thrown into shadows. So what what leads you to these poetic reflections on what you see and what you hold? Well, you know, it's, it's, they are poetic. <laughs> but for me, for me, there is one of the great ways in which over the last thousand years we collectively have told stories is through objects. The way the way that we have made objects out of clay, out of porcelain, has been a way of talking about very obviously domestic everyday life, about domestic vessels, about ritual vessels for for for, for particular symbolic moments and wonderful, wonderful stories about about storytelling. Every time you pick up a blue and white dish from China, from the Ming Dynasty, it's got birds or fishes or a courtesan moving across it, or a boat on a sea, or you know uh, clouds going across the sky. You've got something going on, which is 
the beginning of a kind of story, begin of a beginning of a story. And then if you imagine that having that in your house or in your hands or pouring water from it or eating from it, of course you've got living and storytelling totally intermeshed. So, you know, I think that we underestimate objects at our peril. I think they hold incredible capacity uh, and always have first to, to, to reflect on, on what it is actually to be a, to be fully alive. And, and for me, it's pots. For me, it's, that's, that's a pretty good way of, um, of trying to make a life and trying to tell stories. And, you know, I've, I've been accused of being poetic, but I really, really love being accused of that being poetic. I mean, it's a really good thing to be. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the other. I don't want to be prosaic. I quite like being poetic. So tell us a little bit about your writing process and how it intersects with or differs from your, your process of physical creation. Well, they're very intermeshed because, um, I mean, with the installations I make, the big groups of work I make out of porcelain are often uh, related to, to to poetry or to to phrases. So they're obviously they're kind of groups of pots which are brought together um, like words on a page. Mm. Often, and when you pick up, if you pick up my this new book, you, you'll notice that it's sixty six short chapters, and that. The, the, there's a lot of space in the book too. There are lots of bits of white around in the book. Um, I very carefully designed it as a book that obviously is to be read, um, but has some kind of um, textual kind of sensitivity as well. It's 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 a book which is also constructed around um, lists and fragments and archives and bits of story and repetitions. So clay and words are very, very different and I'm not remotely pretending that they're anything other than two disciplines, but, but for me as one person they do talk to each other and I, I, I write all the time and I make all the time and I have, don't have writing days and making days. There's very rarely a day goes past when something hasn't been written, either on a wall or in a notebook or on a computer. And there's very rarely that a day goes past when I haven't actually made something too. Was it difficult when you were traveling um, to be away from the tools that you're used to, the, your familiar spaces? How, how did you continue making while you were on the road? Well, I missed it very much, but but um, I was always picking things up. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I had a very you know, someone told me off about my last book. Critics are very good at telling telling off writers, and someone wrote a very critical <laughs> review thing that in my last book, which was about my family. I, you know, why did he? Why did he? He's always touching buildings and picking things up in museums. Why didn't he just? keep his hands in his pockets. But actually, do you know what? I can't, actually. I, I do get to grips with the world through my hands. So I might not be making pots as I go around researching things, but 
But you know what? When you're in an archive and you're picking up a 17th century letter or you're on a hillside and you pick up a 8th century porcelain shard or you're you know you're in or you're in a terrible bit of 20th century history and you're you know standing next to some railings you can't for me it's all about touch it's about being there and feeling your way into a place and then into an object and then obviously into people's lives um, so tell us a little bit about your memoir for those who aren't familiar with it. Um, it really sort of catapulted you onto the, the literary scene in a way that I think took a lot of people by surprise. The last book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last book was a book about my family. It's called The Hair with Amber Eyes. And that, was a, um, that, took, that took seven years. This took five. So I'm kind of speeding up a lot here. But, <laughs> but the... the, the, the the family book, The Hair with Amber Eyes, was a, an attempt to try and work out what this inheritance of, of little Japanese carvings called netsuke meant. I'd, been, I'd inherited them from an, a very elderly Jewish great-uncle who had been born in Vienna and lived all around the world and died in Tokyo, who I knew in old age and loved. And it was an attempt to kind of trace through this collection, which had been in the family for 150 years, the story of a, a diasporic Jewish family and, and the, the, the sort of ups and downs of their of their lives over a very turbulent bit of history. But it was also it was also an attempt to feel my way into how to write about objects. It was a kind of autobiography, trying to work out, trying to start writing about what it, what objects hold, what memories um, cohere around things, and whether it's possible, whether it's possible at all to, to tell a story which has at its center a, a thing and make that thing compelling enough to make people want to turn a page or not. So it was a kind of quixotic challenge, really. Um, and it, you know, it, it did well, and it, it changed my life, and it made a huge impact on my family. And, and it, I suppose it gave me the confidence to, 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 as well to start another journey and start another book. So what do you have coming up for you next? What are you writing and what are you making? Well, I'm making for a huge exhibition in Los Angeles in January, which is really exciting. It's my first exhibition in Los Angeles. It's called The 10,000 Things. And then an exhibition in Berlin, and then one in Vienna, and then one in etc. So it goes on and on and on. Lots of making ahead, which makes me feel incredibly happy incredibly happy to be doing that and in terms of writing the next piece of writing I'm doing is uh, I'm writing about about Cy Twombly and poetry so just that's just a total joy so I'm writing about a you know, wonderful artist toy I love it's a practice I love and his infatuation and obsession with, with poetry so no more books for a while, but, but you can't really stop me writing. Right. 
And, you know, as you said, you're speeding up. Maybe the next one will only take four years. Don't wait up. I'll, I'll keep <laughs> you know, the thing is that it's best not to overplan, actually letting something emerge. So mm-hmm. At the moment, it's, it's, it's back to pot. That sounds wonderful. Can you give us a little bit of a, of a sense of what your workspace looks like? Do you have a, a studio? I'm so lucky. I have a beautiful studio. It's an old ammunition factory. Mm. And it's very white and top lit. And at one end of the studio, there's my wheel and clay and glazes and kilns. And at the other end of the studio is up some stairs is, a, is my uh, empty room with lots and lots of books and a desk. So... But in both spaces, I have to say, there's lots and lots of notes written all over the walls. So you can't, even in the room with clay, you know, um, uh, there's there's ideas sort of scribbled all over the walls, like and like a sort of toddler really, who can't stop me scribbling. So it's a very beautiful space, and I, I love it. And um, it's big enough so that if you put music on really, really loudly, you just feel like your like the whole world is possible. That's fantastic. Reverberates beautifully. And what a wonderful way to repurpose a space that was used for making weapons. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's um it's it's not swords into plowshares, it's it's bullets into pots, but it's still there's very there's a strong symbolic bit of DNA there. Well, I think the world is very lucky that you continue to keep reaching out and interacting with it with your hands. That's really generous. It's a lovely thing to say. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Edmund Duval, and you can find his book, The White Road, in stores right now. Edmund, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed takes us to the National Book Awards. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to recap the National Book Awards. Hello, Calvin. Hey, Mark. How you doing? So, uh, you've been going to these for for a couple (laughs) years now. Uh, I used to go with you for... One of those uh, couple of years. Yeah. No, you've been going for a while. A long time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that, funny thing you should bring that up, because that seemed to be a, a topic of discussion as we roamed around uh, the uh, na- the National Book Awards ceremony last night. Uh, some friends seemed to want to bring that up. But uh, <laughs> I have been to a lot. I, I've been going to these things since... They were held at the Waldorf Astoria because um, wow. been it's been held in a, a, a number of different venues. Um, so it probably dates from the late 1980s. And mm-hmm. I, so I've been pretty much every year. As I started going when it was at the Marriott in right. okay. uh, the sure. 42nd Street sure. Marriott. Yeah, so, and last night's event was at Cipriani at Wall Cipri- Street, a suitably ornate and august looking place for uh, really the preeminent American Literary Awards. 
And how was the event? You know, uh, it's hard not to like it. Um, it's obviously it's a black tie, formal affair. You know, uh, very you know, very highfalutin. Uh, you right. could say. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know what's what's great about the National Book Awards is that the, it really does. I mean, in some ways, in ways different from say Book Expo. You know, which is uh, you know has its own appeal. Right. Uh, the, the, you know, a, a portion of the entire book industry is just there and. Uh, you know, along with their authors, and it's it's sort of interesting. Now, uh, it sort of uh, makes it pretty easy to see uh, that indeed the American book industry is pretty much ninety percent white. Right. But uh, this year, I thought it was very interesting is that we certainly what whatever diversity may be lacking in the industry itself, and certainly in the power brokers that were you know, at Cipriani's last night, the National Book Awards themselves and the finalists and a fair number of the winners certainly do seem to be showing the diversity that, you know, that's much discussed these mm-hmm. days. I, I remember the first time I went to Cipriani's, it was the year there was Occupy Wall Street, and I believe that mm-hmm. was the year that Jasmine Ward won mm-hmm. uh, for her novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we have, um, well, l- let's jump right in and let's talk about the uh, the award winners. Sure, yeah. Well, obviously the fiction award is usually the big deal and it's the last award of the year, but I'm going to I'm not going to go there first. I'm actually going to go to the non-fiction award because Let's the winner was uh Tanahisi Coates uh for his book uh Between the World and Me. Uh probably certainly the consensus hands down favorite to win, but you know when he did win, you could tell that it just seemed the entire room just seemed to be thrilled. Uh, an important book uh, on an important topic, race, um, all the things that we've been seeing in the news. Uh, it, it connects Black Lives Matters, the deaths of unarmed black men, the notion of race in America. The book, of course, is written as a letter to his young son yeah, right. and in sort of ways details a parent's helplessness in the face of, uh, of protecting their child in the future. But as he put it, you know, uh, this book allows him not to enroll in in a lie that somehow his son is protected. It was a moving speech. um, And if I may say so myself, um, the book focuses in many ways on his uh, experience at Howard University, where I went as well, one of the historically black uh, colleges and universities. Uh, And then specifically it honed in on Prince Jones, a figure in the book that he knew was uh, shot down, uh, mistaken for a criminal. And he talked a bit about how how helpless, the helpless feeling that that engenders and how you see this kind of sad and terrible death connected to other deaths. And the fact that, of course, that the police officer who did it was never punished right. in any way. Right. Uh, so w- without going on too much, this was certainly the consensus favorite to win nonfiction. It did. And um, it, it really is a special book. I mean, and there were some some contenders there. There was Sally Mann for her book, Absolutely. Hold Still. Sure. Uh, uh, Carlo sure. Power, If the Oceans Were Ink, yeah. which which was an unlikely friendship and a mm-hmm. journey to the sure. heart of the Quran. So, and, which was a, mm-hmm. also topical. Mm-hmm. Tracy K. Smith, yeah. Ordinary yes, Light, yeah. African American woman, a poet, exactly, a poet actually, exactly. uh, but wrote a memoir in this case, exactly yeah. about her husband, who is an artist who died. And yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, isn't this about her mother? Oh, I'm sorry. This is her about her mother. mother. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, that's another point who you're talking right. about. Yes, exactly. I did yeah. that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Both moving books we might, right. you know, yeah. if we can add Yeah, that. exactly. And of course, Cy Montgomery, yeah. uh, The Soul of the Octopus. Yes. So, Ta-Nehisi Coates was, uh, I think, seemed to be, you know, seemed, he was expected to win. He, uh, yeah. I mean, this book has been, you know, certainly taken the literary world by storm in many ways. Uh, right. If I can plug an upcoming feature... Um, 
um, the, the African-American feature, Af- African-American publishing features, which will be in our November 30th issue, uh, we're going to be looking at um, university presses and nonfiction. Um, right. uh, but uh, we do a, we have an interview with with with, with Chris Jackson, and I'd be and I'd be remiss not to mention that uh, one of the things that Tanahisi Coast talked about really was the relationship he had with his editor Chris Jackson. So Chris Jackson is his editor, right? Yes. Exactly. And yeah. um, at, uh, Spiegel and Grau. And so he uh, he brought Chris in because he t- said that the book is really a product of their conversations together. So he really wanted to highlight. Uh, really, the the editor in the editorial process right. of bringing this book, you know, right. to, uh, to bear. So, um, were there any highlights in his speech? Something that you you recall? Well, I think that the things that we mentioned, um, yeah. singling out Prince Jones, uh, um, singing out Howard University, the mecca, uh, as changing his life and putting him in touch with um, uh, black and African students from all over the world. Um, you know, that's really what leaps out. And, and as well as just the power and emotion behind this book um, that comes from something deeply personal, though it's really a look at the whole infrastructure and right. mythology of American racism. Yeah. And uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you ran into or knew his father, did, knew yes. of his father. At uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, there was, there's an interesting cosmic loop uh, to... Yes. Um, to Coates winning the National Book Award for nonfiction um, uh, and having this focus on Howard University. Uh, I met, and I'm a longtime friend of um, Coates' father, W. Paul Coates, who was actually, who is a publisher. Uh, he's the publisher of Black Classic Press, which mm-hmm. basically keeps classic African-American scholarship and history in print. They, they bring things back into print. Mm-hmm. And he's also the owner and operator of what I'm pretty sure is the only black-operated print-on-demand publisher. So he mm-hmm. not only publishes the books, he has the power to print them and to deliver them to you, too. Right. But uh, I met Paul when he was a book vendor out of a, out of the, and selling books out of a cart in front of Crampton Auditorium on Howard University campus. Uh, when I was a student, I got to know him just talking with him about his books. Flash forward 30, 40 years. I'm at a party in New York. I see this guy across the room. He's wearing a, you know, a very nice suit instead of a dashiki. <laughs> and it's Paul from the vin- his book vendor days, now a publisher, now on the board of the National Book Foundation. So we had a reunion there. And uh, I've had the the, uh, the benefit uh, of being able to write about him, his publishing right. operation now as a as a journalist. So yes, yes. what a fantastic story! So it's story. an interesting. Uh, and we'll definitely keep in mind, <laughs> listeners, November 30th for the African-American uh, uh, publishing issue. Yes, publishing so check issue, us out. Exactly. Yes. So let's, let's, let's do Save the Fiction for last. Let's go on to, um, okay. would you want poetry? or? How, how sure, you... yeah. You know, I'd like to do a shout out also to Emma Kuntz, who is our colleague here at Publishers Weekly. She was actually there Great. covering along, along with us, and she did our first story that, was, um, that went up right after the uh, you know, awards were announced, but she couldn't be here today. All right, um, Emma. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> shout out to Emma. Um, uh, the, the Poetry Award by, was um, uh, by Robin Costa Lewis, um, and the book is The Voyage of the Sable Venus, published by Alfred Knopf. Mm-hmm. She was very amusing when she uh, got the award. She was, says, you know, whoa, I, I was just at my table chilling with my buds, and then I hear my name called. So, uh, but uh, she was also very heartfelt. Uh, as I recall, she... Um, she thanked, uh, rather, she read a poem by Plavna Neruda, an anti-war mm-hmm. poem. I think it was called Keeping Quiet, mm-hmm. to sort of evoke her feelings at the time. But uh, she was also just very grateful. And um, part of the great 
joy of being at the National Book Awards is to see how humbled right. these writers are. To be in a room full of some of the best writers in the country, indeed, and in the world, and for you to be singled out for your writing, you know, you, it can't really be a higher or better, you know, you know, accolade to receive. So, uh, so she was sort of suitably um, struck by the moment, and uh, the poem was was quite moving at, uh, to hear read the poem. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. And uh, what about young people's literature? Yeah, so young people's literature uh, was won by uh, Neil Sh- uh, Schusterman, who um, he's a he. I mean, a longtime uh, children Y book writer uh, for his book Challenger uh, Deep. Very interesting. He probably had the funniest line of the night, though. He was certainly the book is has a very serious context. Um, he said, "Finally, um, I, I'm going to fulfill my father's wish." Uh, I've become an NBA star. So uh, there you go. Uh, for you non-basketball fans out there who are scratching their heads, uh, this this is a long-running joke in certain circles of the book world about right, the NBA. Right. Yep. But, Especially uh, when you Google NBA, for some reason, the national book is... National you know, yeah, for some reason, you get all this stuff about basketball. What is, crazy. what is that about? <laughs> right, right. But uh, he was also incredibly grateful to be there, but also because of the the, the book that he... His book really focuses on mental illness, uh, specifically on schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And he kind of talks about how uh, his his son, who was there at the event with him and, and eventually came on stage, mm-hmm. was um, uh, had been suffering, um, but had, you know, had gotten help and, and, he, and was stable. You know, I've had some uh, uh, contact with mental illness in my own family with yeah. schizophrenia, so it was, it was really moving to me as well. Um, but the book um, kind of used some concept that he said his son Brandon had delivered to him over the years. In fact, he said the title of the book, which is about uh, this really deep trench in the ocean that came from, I believe, a, a sort of a science project that his son had done years before. And he loved the name. And he said, I just I never had a book. I just had the title for years. Oh, so wow. he invited the, his his son up on the stage and they both sort of um, thanked the crowd for it. So it was a very moving moment. Um, and about how old is his son? Uh, you know, I, I tell you, his son looks like he may be early 20s. I wasn't right. sure about it. I mean, the inspirational moments that he talked about was were from when his son was very young. Right. But he also went through a period of, of I think, instability in dealing with his mental illness. Right. Uh, but he was in, he was certainly in much better shape and, and joined his father on stage. And I'd also like to point out, this was also a very rich category, young mm-hmm. people's literature. And I have to point out, one of the finalists, who didn't win, but was nominated, uh, Noelle Stevenson, uh, for her graphic novel. In fact, her first oh. full-length, book-length graphic novel, uh, Nimona. So just a shout-out to Noelle. Wonderful. Um, to, I write about graphic novels, yep. and it's, uh, it's a... It's a great achievement uh, for the category, too. Uh, though we've seen a few nominations in recent years, yeah. including a winner last year, Ross Chess, right. That's winning right. in nonfiction. But uh, Noelle did a great job. It's a wonderful book. Um, but also at Ali Benjamin, The Thing About Jellyfish, Laura Ruby for Bone Gap, uh, Steve Scheinkin, Most Dangerous, Daniel Ellsberg in The Secret History of the Vietnam War, just to name you know the other finalists. Uh, Sounds wonderful. So, um, finally... Yes. fiction okay well was uh, this a surprise was this was you know i think there was some surprise uh, in the fiction i'm not entirely sure who was a favorite but i mean in some ways maybe um we should have focused a little bit more on adam johnson i mean he's a 
Pulitzer Prize winning novelist right. as well. And indeed, you know, well, you notice back in the day, the agency that represented him actually used to be in the same building. And uh, Warren Frazier is his right. agent, who right. was right down the hall for us, and I was right. friendly with him. So, but you, they, they've since moved their office out of this building mm-hmm. now. But uh, Adam Johnson won for Fortune Smiles, mm-hmm. you know, a novel that uh, I'm told, unfortunately, I wasn't, I hadn't, didn't chance to read the book. Uh, combines elements of fantasy and reality and many genres. I have a personal anecdote about Adam Johnson yeah. that's, that's kind of interesting. Another cosmic loop. Besides his work as a writer, which I guess principally people know him about now, he was a professor, he may still be, at Stanford. And I first encountered him probably six, seven years ago, before his Pulitzer Prize winning novel. He was the head of the Stanford graphic novel program. Now, I apologize for yet another plug for the graphic novel category. Well, no, but it, apparently they've been uh, surfacing in National Book Awards and big, a- big absolutely. awards across and the board. And they're surfacing indirectly again. Yep. He uh, basically started a really um, widely uh, sort of um, acclaimed and, and covered program at Stanford. Basically, it's a class that brings together journalism students to create a graphic novel. And uh, what they did there very often is the students would put together and they did projects of very serious uh, investigative and historical journalism. Uh, There was they did a graphic novel about uh, sex trafficking trade, Mm -hmm. another one about that adapted the story of a Japanese engineer Mm -hmm. who by a fluke witnessed both the atom bombs at at, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima Uh, by a fluke of his profession. He was actually lived through both of those mm-hmm. so they did a graphic novel about that and other really amazing books about uh, another book about a, a, um, uh, an Asian American who, who came to the states in the early 40s and who became a v- big social justice right. pioneer so I got to know him at a dinner at San Diego Comic Con basically around his work putting together these graphic novels flash forward once again years later and he's a Pulitzer Prize winner and I actually bumped into him <laughs> since he won the Pulitzer uh, which I think was last year at the National Book Awards and we like, like hey man boy you've come a long way and we you know we remembered each other so he was back again this year for his novel Fortune Smiles he didn't have uh, you know um you know, a powerful acceptance speech, but he did have a very interesting and quirky uh, moment where he reached into the pocket of his tux and he said he, he discovered that he, he was a he was actually a, a reader last year or a judge last mm-hmm. year, I think for the fiction category, and he still had the notes in his tux from last from the last year, year. Right. and so he sort of uh, so he sort of talked about that and then he talked a little bit about. The notes he had made this year simply abound the his co-finalists, right. and so he had some some kind words to say for them before thanking his family. So that was uh you know that's the big catch. Um, the, yeah, oh. the fiction is always the last the last award given out. We probably should mention also the um, the lifetime achievement awards. Yes, let's talk about that. They're usually given first, right. uh, but uh, James Patterson uh, received the um, the liter the Literarian Award, and that mm-hmm. sort of became a joke throughout the things as he's like, what's a literarian <laughs> anyway? Uh, but obviously Patterson was being awarded for, uh, you know, his commitment to reading and supporting librarians and teachers and independent bookstore. He's given away his own money. Um, he's got a lot of it. Uh, he sells an incredible number of books. Yeah. And he did describe himself to the amusement of the entire audience as, uh, you know, you know, uh, I'm, you know, the mass market guy here with all these liter- literary peaks, you know, the Big Mac at Cipriani's. So that that got a got a big laugh. But uh, but he got a big round of applause. I mean, no one can uh, can uh, challenge his commitment to uh, supporting reading. And then, of course, 
the great novelist Don DeLillo, um, the author of uh, you know White Noise, Underworld, um, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award there, and he gave a very humble, very grateful um, uh, uh, acceptance speech of the award, uh, talking about himself more as a reader than a writer, right. and and how grateful he was to be there that that night. So, oh, sounds, it sounds beautiful like a evening. Sounds of, like a wonderful yes. evening. Yes. Well, Calvin, thank you so much again. It's a pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next week, we're off for Thanksgiving, but tune in to hear a couple of our favorite recent interviews rebroadcast for your listening pleasure. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 